Uh, Romans chapter 9, if you've been with us throughout or if you're visiting today, uh, Romans chapter 9 is a big change in, in what we've been reading. Uh, up to this point, Romans has been building all the way up to what we, we talked about last week in chapter 8. And basically this long, huge build, all the way through Paul talking about us having a problem with sin and, and, and him, uh, God giving us this solution and, and all of these things, it all culminated at the end of chapter 8 when Paul says this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any uh, powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like one of the high points of the whole New Testament. Like one of the, if you're, you know, you're, you're doing the mountain peak thing, like you're up on the big top of the mountain. And at some point, you've got to kind of come back down. And he gets into chapter 9, and it's like this complete change of tone. You're like, am I reading the same thing I've been reading? Like, is this the same letter? Because he, he can completely change his tone, and he completely changes direction over the next three chapters. And we're, we're going to talk about those next three chapters uh, today and next week as we kind of look at this. But, but I, I want you to kind of remember everything that we've been talking about. And if, you, if you're visiting, if you haven't been here, the theme of Romans up to this point is this. Uh, we have a big sin problem. God provided a solution that, that's greater than anything we could re- understand or realize. That solution comes with a promise that if we have faith in God, uh, we will be uh, saved. We, we will find His righteousness, that direction. And that, that promise comes with a peace that we are, are brought back together to restoration, to reconciliation uh, with God. And that because of that, nothing that we deal with, no amount of suffering that we deal with uh, can overcome us. That it all boils up to what we just mentioned a minute ago at the end of chapter 8. The love of God is so strong, nothing can ever take that away from us. And so Paul goes from all that talking about the love of God to immediately jumping into chapter 9. And right off the bat, you read this, you know, man, Paul, something's wrong. Like, Paul's kind of changed tone, because now suddenly he's taken a step back, and he is, he's heartbroken. And so last week, if you were here, uh, we, we read the end of chapter 8, and we realized that Paul uh, writes this series of rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 8. Kind of what we're going to do today as we go through chapters 9 and 10 is we're going to ask ourselves some rhetorical questions looking at this passage. Because this is a passage, I, I want to put a big disclaimer on this. This is a passage, these next three chapters are very difficult to understand. If you just read them on the surface level, they are very difficult to understand. Scholars, theologians, pastors, just everyday Christians have struggled with these three chapters of the Bible for centuries. So if you read these and they don't make sense to you, don't think, man, I I don't don't know what to do with all this because the rest of us don't either. Like We're trying to figure these out. And on their surface, it can really lead to some doctrine that we don't necessarily adhere to here. But when you start looking at them in, in, in the context of, of the narrative of Scripture, it, it makes a little bit more sense. So let's jump into this. If you've got a Bible, I don't, I don't have slides today, so if you've got a Bible, uh, if you've got a device, Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And, and here's where Paul jumps into this. Again, coming off of the heels of one of the greatest passages in Scripture about the love of God, he says this in chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what you expected him to say right after chapter 8, isn't it? Hey, God's love is so great. My heart's breaking. It's like, okay, this just, this just got a little more serious. <laughs> Verse 3, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, 
the people of Israel. What Paul is going to write about, what this, this passage is going to be about, is how Israel, the chosen people of God, are rejecting God. They are, are rejecting Christ. They're moving away from what Paul wants them to see. It should be plainly obvious to them. They're rejecting it. And, and on the flip side, the unchurched, the Gentiles, are embracing it. And the Israelites don't like that. And so I, I want to kind of put something else out there, too. As we read through this, because Scripture is relevant today just as it was the first people who read it. And so as we read this, when it says Israel, we could plug in the word church or Christians. When it says Gentiles, we could plug in the word unchurched or non-Christians. And it's still the same message. It doesn't lose anything here. So, so kind of keep that in mind a little bit. Because what Paul's going to come out, this, this kind of sounds like an attack on the church. It's really not. This is a loving reminder that, that the church needs to make sure we're getting things right. That the church needs to keep the focus where it's supposed to be focused. If not, then we're not doing it the right way. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we read this. But verse 3 should get your attention right off the bat. I wish I could, uh, that I myself were cut off and cursed from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. That's a big time statement. That's how much Paul cares about these people. He's saying, I will give up my own salvation for you to have yours. Now, I want to kind of put this in a little context, because I've dealt with people who are hurting, physically or spiritually, emotionally, whatever. And I can honestly tell them, you know what, I really wish I could take that pain from you. Because I know I can handle it. I know right now you can't. If I could take your pain from you, I would. I don't think I can look at anybody and say, I'd give up my salvation so you can have yours. I don't think I can do that. I'm a little too selfish with my salvation with God. And Paul's probably being a little bit, um, probably, you know, embellishing just a little bit on this to get their attention, but it should get their attention, and it should get our attention as well. That's how serious he is. He's heartbroken. I picture him writing this with tears streaming down his face as as he writes this passage. And here's kind of where he's going to go with this, that these people... Israel, the church, in their minds, if you belong to this family, you're good. And he's saying, that's not the case. In fact, it has nothing to do with that. Look what he says in verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Here's where he's going to go, and and I'll kind of just summarize the next several verses. Because what he's meaning with this is when you, you run down the Old Testament, you run down how Israel was formed. God did not follow what we would think of as being uh, the patriarchal line. Now, you think about kings and queens in in our day and time, and you can look at, say, the Queen of England. Well, we know who her successor is going to be. It's her oldest son. We know who his successor will be, his oldest son. We know who his successor, I mean, on and on and on, right? It's the oldest son. Now it's the oldest child, period. But God's making it very clear. Paul's making it very clear. God doesn't work that way. And to kind of illustrate that, he goes through Abraham. And he says, if this were the case, if it were just strictly up to the family, then why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Ishmael was Abraham's oldest son, but he chose Isaac. Then with Isaac, he chose Jacob, not Esau. Esau was the oldest son. He chose the younger son. Then from Jacob, he chose Joseph, who was like number 11. I mean, he could have chosen any of those older brothers. He didn't. He chose Joseph. And so he goes through this list saying it's not about the family line. It's about uh, being chosen. In other words, what Paul is saying here is privilege means nothing. What you think you deserve means nothing. 
What you think you've earned means nothing. And so if we were to put this in the context of the church and go back to the question we asked at the top, what breaks your heart? Because Paul's heart is broken right now. What, question, or what, what is it that breaks your heart? Let me ask you this, church. When was the last time your heart got broken because someone around you rejected the truth about God? And your thought is, you know what, they should know better. But when was your heart actually broken? I'm not saying when did you get annoyed. I'm not saying when did you get upset or mad. I'm not saying when did you go, there was another one. No, when was the last time your heart was actually broken because someone rejected the truth of the gospel? When was the last time your hearts were broken because someone left the church? And again, I don't mean going, man, I can't believe they rejected us. That's not what I mean. No, when was the last time your heart was broken that it motivated you to chase them down and bring them back? Because you know that they know what the truth is, and they're rejecting it now. When was the last time your heart was truly broken for them? That's kind of our big first question. If you're taking notes, write it down. You don't have to put an answer right now, but write it down. What, what breaks my heart? What truly breaks my heart? For me, I hope what breaks my heart is what breaks God's heart. I hope that what he sees in the world that breaks his heart breaks mine. And I don't just gloss over it or move past it. That it gets my attention. Here's where he's going to go with this. And, and I kind of want to preface this too as we go through chapter 9. This seems like a winding, aimless road. It ties back together in the end. So kind of bear with this as we go through this a little bit. Because he moves into the next section and he starts asking this question, is God fair or unfair? Is God truly fair or is he unfair? Look at verse 14. He says here, what shall we say then? Again, he just talked about those where God chose one son over the other. God chose one and in theory it seems like he, because he chose one, he rejected the other. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, if you just read that at face value, does that seem like a very fair God? I'll choose who I want to have mercy on. I'll choose who I want to have compassion on. I think about it as a, as a parent, as a, as, a, as a father, I've got my three kids. And if I say, you know what, I'm going to have mercy on my oldest today, not on my, my two youngest. Does that seem like a very fair father? Does that seem like I'm being fair to them? Now understand something real quick with mercy, because here's, here's something we, we fail to understand sometimes. Mercy, when you define it at its core, mercy is neither something that is obligated by the giver to give, nor is it something that is earned. Mercy is not an obligation, it's not a commendation. Therefore, mercy can only be given by the free choice of the giver. Choice, that, 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 that has to be there. I can't earn it, and nobody has to give it to me. If somebody gives it to me because they have to, it's not mercy. It's obligation. So think back to this passage. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have uh, compassion on whom I have compassion. And we sit and we say, that's unfair. Think about it like this. Let's say that there is a, a very wealthy woman, and she decides, I'm going to bless some people. So I'm going to give 25 completely paid full-ride scholarships to any college that these high school students want to go to. 
And so thousands upon thousands of kids apply for them, but she chooses 25. Now you could look at her and go, you know what? You could have given all thousand scholarships out. You've got the money for that. Is that where we go with that? Or do we say, man, what a blessing you gave to these 25 kids. Now, that's a partial illustration there because that's like saying we have to apply for God's mercy. But just think on on, on the, the thought here. We sometimes have this thought that if I help anyone, I'm obligated to help everyone. And God doesn't fit that mold with us. God says right here that He will have mercy on whom He has mercy. And then He takes it a step further, and we really start to ask this question, is God fair? Look in verse 16. It says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. First, uh, Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, the context here is God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Verse 18, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, I want to be very clear and honest about this, too. If I'm reading Romans, and this is the first part of the Bible I've uh, read, and I read these two verses, I'm like, man, God's a jerk. Let's just be honest. Because if, if that's all you're reading, and you don't know the story, that's how it reads. Wow, God chooses who he wants to bless, and he chooses who he wants to kick to the curb. That's what I just read there. I mean, I'll take my chances elsewhere. Thanks, God. That's what it sounds like. We don't read the Bible that way, though. We read the whole story. You can't just pluck one or two verses and call it good. You read the whole story, and you know the whole story here. If you don't, it goes like this. Go back to uh, the, the Old Testament. Go back to the time of Exodus, and God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. Why? To prove a point of who he is. But did he just randomly go, you know what? There's Pharaoh right there, and I'm going to harden his heart. No, see, Pharaoh had already set himself up for this. Pharaoh had already rejected the truth. Pharaoh was like enslaving God's people. Pharaoh was trying to eradicate God's people. So he had already turned his heart away. He had already kind of hardened his heart himself, so God just helped him out. You go back to Romans chapter 1, and we read about this, how this works. Romans chapter 1 uh, Paul, uh, Paul writes this, he says, They knew God, but they neither glorified God, uh, Him as God, or gave thanks to Him, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the Creator. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. So, right there, Paul's saying, because they've done all this, God just let them do it. He let them go. In other words, when you run away from God, He'll let you run. He'll let you get yourself into trouble. And here's the thing that I kind of want to point out on this. God doesn't harden your hearts. He lets you harden it yourself. This, to me, is why church attendance and engagement is so important. This is why being here and being active is so important. Because when you make it a point to be here on a regular basis, I'm talking as often as you can, week to week, you're putting God at a high point in your life. You're making Him a priority. Now, does that mean coming to church every week saves you? Absolutely not. But it means in your heart, you're putting God first. 
You're putting God above everything else. When you start letting that drop, and you're like, oh, I'll show up every, you know, once a month, suddenly you're just naturally bringing him down the chain and you're letting other things fill the top of that list. And when you do that, other things will start to become your God. When other things become your God, guess what your heart is doing? It's hardening. It's hardening. Maybe slow, but it's hardening. And when that happens, God will use your hard heart to make a point for others. Now again, I ask the question, does that sound very fair to you? Because you can follow it up and go, well, you know what? God gives me the free will to choose. God says I, I can follow him or I, can, I, I have the free will to choose. So if he gives me the free will to choose, how can he punish me for not choosing him? Simple. Because we were created for one reason, to worship him. Period. We were created to worship him and we were created to live with him in his kingdom. And what have we done? We rejected it. A few weeks ago, we talked about that very first sin back in Genesis chapter 3. We chose to try to become like God on ourselves. And we got all of, of the rejection that comes with that. We rejected God, so He kicked us out of His paradise. Because there's not room for anything other than devotion to Him in His paradise. And I think what this boils down to is you kind of have to look and ask and, and kind of Fitting this back into what we're talking about here. Is God fair or unfair with all of this? You have to ask yourself, why is it that I want to love and worship God? It's easy to say, well, I love God because of all these great things He's done for me. He's blessed me and He's done all these great things. But when that's your answer, and that's not a terrible answer, when that's your answer, though, you're saying, my love for God is conditional. I love Him because of all these things He has done for me. And our love for God should be the foundation ahead of all of that stuff. Go back to the Old Testament story of Job. Job has everything, wealth, uh, possessions, an amazing family, and he loses all of it. He loses it all. And at the core of this whole story of Job, it boils down to Job, why do you love God? Because of all the stuff he's blessed you with or because he is God? And Job loses it all. He's, he's given all these terrible uh, ailments, and he never rejects God. He never finally boils down and says, God, this is, I'm done. He clings to whatever sliver of hope he had. He loves God for who he is. Here's kind of the thing that we need to understand. When it comes to understanding what God's choice is about, we have to accept and acknowledge that He will bless us in different ways. He does that by His choice. Look at verse 20. Here's what He says. Or verse 19, it says, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist His will? That's kind of what we just talked about there. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed to say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay? Uh, some pottery for special purposes, and some for common use. Again, we can look and very easily start to say, well, God, why'd you bless this person this way and not me? Growing up, um, I was in love with sports. I wanted nothing more than to be a great athlete. And despite this physique you see in front of you today, I wasn't blessed with great athleticism. <laughs> I was a uh, small asthmatic 
Those don't really translate to great athletes. And I would want it so bad, like, God, why did you give this in my, why did you make me want to do this so badly, and I can't even outrun anything? I can't catch a cold if it's thrown to me. I mean, (laughs) except I was a sickly child, so I caught every cold. But you get the point, right? And I see some dude who's like incredibly athletic and doesn't care. I'm like, why'd you do this? This isn't fair. We start doing that, we start sitting around. It's like easy for me to kind of sit here and, and watch two people go back and forth. It's easy for like Isaiah to say, well, God, why'd you give Kurt all this stuff? I really wanted all that. I'm like, God, why'd you give Isaiah all this stuff? I wanted all that. And we can easily start to nitpick where we're blessed. We can easily start to nitpick and go, well, God, why was this person born into a wealthy family and I wasn't? I'd be the same person if I was born in that wealthy family. Why? Why'd you do that, God? God, why'd you give him all this intellect and not me? Why did you give this person this and not me? I should have had that. And because of that, God, you, you, I mean, you cheated me. It's easy. It's easy. Here's the thing you have to understand. Paul says very clearly, it's not our place to question God. The creator has created. And it's not my place to say, God, you should have made me fine pottery instead of uh, this lump of clay over here. You were created on purpose for a purpose. All of us were. And too often we start looking around the room at how everybody else was created and we measure ourselves against them. We weigh ourselves against them. Yeah, I would have loved for God to give me a voice that you get up here and, and sing like an angel. He didn't. I would love for God to have given me different traits that, that are weaknesses for me. He didn't. He created me the way He created me for a reason. He created you the way He created you for a reason. And, and here's, here's kind of why I think this, this is important. Because when we start to, to play that game, we start to point it back to God why we fail. We start to point back towards God why we don't live up to, to the salvational standards He gives us. And when I look at other people and go, if you didn't make me like, like Oli or like Greg, so, you know, whatever, God. It's your fault I'm not able to continue on this path. Here's what Paul says. Verse 22. He says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, that's us, were the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? That's also us. What if he did that, whom he prepared in advance, even us whom he also called not only the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Here's what Paul is stating here. We are both the objects of God's wrath and of his mercy. And I think you kind of sum it up to say it this way. God is the author of our salvation, and we are not. But we are the author of our destruction. God is not. When I take my eyes off of God, when I take my eyes off of what He has put in front of me, and I start looking at other people's paths and plans, I am destined to fall. I am destined to fail. Why? I'm measuring myself up against something that God didn't intend for me to measure myself up against. And what we have to understand is is that sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes we will say, God, I'm a good person. Why are you letting this happen? This isn't fair. Jennifer talked about this a couple weeks ago. 
that sometimes we endure suffering. We'll just say it. Sometimes it, it just sucks. And we have to understand in those moments when we're going, God, it's not fair. This isn't good. We're measuring that by our definition of fair and good. And God doesn't fit our definitions. God doesn't fit what we think the way the world should be. Because God has a plan. And he's had a plan that's been in place all along. And here's the thing. His plan is perfect. Because he is perfect. His plan is good. Even if it doesn't seem so because we're basing it on our definition of good. My definition of good and your definition of good may be different. Don't believe me? Ask me what my favorite restaurant is. I'll tell you, or you tell me what yours is. Probably not the same. What's your favorite movie? I'll tell you mine. Probably not the same. We have different definitions of what is good. Because what is good to us is what appeals to us. God does what is perfect and true and good even if we don't like it. And even if it doesn't make sense to us. Because God is perfect and true and good. Even if we don't understand that. So here's the third question. Because of all that, why do we struggle to believe? Why is there so much unbelief in the church? Paul starts to turn this a little bit. And this is where if you're reading this as a Christian, you can take this one of two ways. You can read this and you can point the finger at other Christians going, hey, you guys need to pay attention to this. He's talking about you. Or you can read this and go, Paul, what have I done to you? Why are you blasting me? Because it's going to sound here in the next few verses like Paul is coming after the church. He is doing this in love. He is doing this from a period and a spot of being heartbroken for the church. But here's what he says in, in chapter 9, verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles, the unchurched, those who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness by faith, but the people of Israel, the church, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Here's where he's going with this. He's saying that the unchurched, the lost, are finding righteousness without even looking for it. They're finding salvation without looking for it. The church, those who are saved, are losing it because they're trying to earn it on their own. And you may look at that and go, well, that's not, that's not really a true statement. Like, I, I mean, I believe that, that works don't get me to heaven. But let me ask this, and this is a question I want you to answer, answer honestly to yourself. When you work for God, are you looking over your shoulder to make sure he's watching? Now think about that. Uh, often we, we say this, and I, I don't think this is a bad idea to say, you know what, I'm not doing this to impress man, I'm doing this to impress God. But at its core, like, are you really trying to impress God? Like, when, and I'm not, again, service of the church, of our community, that's valuable. We should be doing that. And as, as new Christians come to the church, we encourage them to get plugged in. But we make it very clear, you're not trying to earn any greater status with God by doing this. We're serving because Jesus served and we want to become more like Jesus, period. So if you're serving the church and you're doing this from this, this, this mindset of this is going to maybe earn me a little bit nicer place in heaven, a few extra jewels in that crown, we need to step back and you need to do some honest evaluation and say, no, I am serving because I love my Lord. 
I am serving because this is what Jesus did, and I want to become more like Jesus. There's a very fine line between becoming a stronger disciple and trying to show off for God a little bit. And it's a very fine line. I'm probably as guilty of, of towing that line and going across it as other people. It's just easy to do. It's easy to say, God, look at me, look at me. No, I don't care if anybody else sees me, but I know you're watching. So I'm going to do some good work for you today. We have to be careful with that. Because whether we realize it or not, we are trying to earn some righteousness. And Paul's been very clear, we cannot do that. Those works should be in response to our righteousness that we've received from God. They should be in response. Because I am saved, I should just naturally want to go do my best for God. I want to give Him my best. But we have to make sure that we're not crossing that line and trying to earn anything else. Paul goes on in verse 32. He says, why not? Because they, the church, they pursued righteousness not by faith, but as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble. A rock that makes them fall, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. It is too easy to stumble over your own righteousness. In particular, your self-righteousness. Because what he's saying here is that stone he's talking about is, is Jesus. And he's saying that that stone, Jesus, is there for us to build on top of. It's our foundation, but too often we trip ourselves over that stone. Read, read uh, this week as I was studying for the sermon, read this, this uh, idea from uh, one of the commentators, and it just, it just hit me on the side of the head. He said, the problem with church people is they think they have Jesus figured out. And I stepped back and I read that again and again. The problem with church people is they have Jesus figured out. And here's what he meant by that. When I have Jesus figured out, I can close my Bible, set it down and go, cool, I'm good to go. I've got him figured out, so therefore, um, you know, I, I'm good. You will never have Jesus figured out. You will never have him figured out because he is so much greater than what your mind can comprehend. And too often, those of us, and I put myself in this category, who have grown up in the church and spent years and weeks and days in the church, we forget what it means to be saved. Why? Because this is the life I've always known. I haven't had that great conversion experience. I never had to have somebody just beat me over the head with the Bible to get my attention. Now, they have to get my attention in a different way. But here's the thing. If you're reading this, maybe you read your Bible every day. But if you're reading this and you're just going, okay, well, I'll read Matthew 7 today. and All right, that was good stuff. Go to bed. Or you read it in the morning. Have, that, have your coffee. All right, let's, let's go for the day. Or are you reading this going, all right, I'm, I'm going to read this today. And God, as I read this, I've got this passage memorized. I've read it so many times. But God, as I read this, let something stand out to me today. Let something new and fresh jump out at me today because I don't want to be who I was yesterday. And yeah, I've been a Christian for 50 years, but you know what? I can still get more like Jesus. If you're not praying that prayer, if you aren't trying to become more like Jesus, you are making Jesus more like yourself. And here's the problem with that. If I start to worship a Jesus who is just like me, 
and you worship a Jesus who is just like you, what have we got? 120 Jesuses here? All right, now I'm going to try to bring people to Jesus. Well, guess who I'm trying to bring them to? My Jesus. You know, no, my Jesus is the right one, not Matt's, you know, not, not Gary's, my Jesus. I mean, there's, their Jesus is like 85% like mine, but that 15%, I mean, you know, they're not, no, no, my Jesus is the right one. The Jesus who looks like me, who talks like me, the Jesus who dresses like me, the Jesus who votes like me. I hope that stepped on some toes. Here's the problem with having a Jesus like me. The Jesus who looks just like me, he loves and likes all the things I do, but that means he also doesn't like the things I don't like. That means he doesn't like the people I don't like. That means he gets irritated and upset by the same petty things I get irritated and upset by. Anybody want to come worship that Jesus with me? I have a six-year-old who's exactly like me, and that's annoying enough. I don't need a God that's exactly like me. Here's the problem, folks. When we start to create our own Jesus, it is the easiest Jesus in the world to follow. And if following Jesus every day is super, super easy for you, you aren't following Jesus anymore. You're following your own idea. It was Dallas Willard, great uh, pastor and theologian, several years ago said, God made man in his image, and man was so kind he returned the favor. (laughs) Following Jesus should be a challenge. It should challenge you every single day because you have to acknowledge every single day, I'm not good enough, I'm doing something wrong, and I need to fix it. I need to become more like you. I hope my last breath I ever take on this earth becomes, I become more like Jesus with that breath. All the way up until the day I die, I am continually changing and transforming, and that only happens when I relentlessly pursue him. That only happens when I go after him, because if I'm not, then I'm going after my own idea of self-righteousness. And it might be good, but it's not good enough. It might be good, it might, it might be good for some people to become more like me, but that's not the goal. I can't save their souls. I can't bring them salvation or righteousness. Only Christ can do that. He is our rock. We will either build on Him or we will trip over Him. It is that simple. We are saved by God's choice, but we are lost by our own choice. And here's the final question as we kind of get into the chapter 10 here. The final question Paul's kind of bringing for us, it's, why does this really matter? I mean, you said it, I'm saved by grace, by my faith in the grace of God. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites, is that they may be saved. It's that simple. And again, I picture Paul writing this with tears coming down his face. He's just given us one of the greatest passages in the Bible in Romans chapter 8. And now he's stepped back and he is emotional. He's not coming at this from a theological debate standpoint. If he's saying stuff that that is, is, is hard to hear as a Christian, he's not attacking. 
He's not coming after you going, you know, waving his Bible back and forth, just beating you on the head going, get it together. No, he is emotional going, what's wrong? Makes me think of Jesus strolling into Jerusalem and he stops and he sees what the city's become and he weeps. And, and the, the word that's used there for Jesus weeping, it's not like he's just got some teary eyes. No, he is in deep pain and sorrow. And that's how I picture Paul writing this. So he's not writing this trying to have a debate. He's not writing this trying to be a jerk. He is writing this because at his core, he is hurting for his people. Because he knows that they know what is right, and they're not doing it. And he's pleading with them, get it together. He's pleading with them, will you look and see what's right? And we're getting a glimpse into Paul's heart here. I'm going to ask that question again. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? If you want a way to answer that question, I'll give you another question to answer, and it'll help you answer the first question. Let me ask you this one. What is on your prayer list every day? Because if you sit and look at your prayer list every day, that's going to show you what breaks your heart. Because what your prayer life includes reveals what's at the core of your heart. If your prayer list is just a list of personal needs from you, maybe some friends, some family, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that shows you the core of your heart. But is your prayer just that God would reveal himself to everyone? Do you see, going out here to town, do you, do you see how, how society has rejected God? And do you go, you know, if we just all get back on the right track, we'd be fine. Or do you hit your knees and go, God, why is this happening? Why are we rejecting you? Why are we running away from you? These are your people. Your churches should be packed out every Sunday. We should have to have 10 services because we have so many people coming to hear Jesus. Is that your prayer? Is that your prayer? God, why have we rejected you? God, bring the people back to you. Use me to make that happen. That's Paul's prayer right here. Paul's coming from a spot of deep emotion. But he warns too. As you look in verse 2, he warns, you can't let that emotion get out of control. Here's what he says in verse 2. He says, I can testify about them, Israel, the church, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Church, this is a warning to us. If you've got a highlighter, if you underline, this is something to highlight and underline in your Bible. And here's why. These two verses should serve as a warning. Paul is saying it's not bad to be zealous. Zealous just means you're passionate. You, you are super passionate about this. But he says it has to be based on knowledge. Timothy Keller, uh, a pastor, a, a, a scholar, he says that when you have zeal and you don't have knowledge, what you get is fanaticism. And fanaticism is a dangerous thing. And we might talk about being a fanatic, and you're like, man, that, talk about being a sports fanatic or a Jesus fanatic, like it's a good thing. But he says, when you, when you get into fanaticism, that can quickly lead to terrorism. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the church being 
Christian terrorists. But we can easily get there. I'm not talking about going and, and causing mass destruction and, and, and you know, hurting people physically, but man, we can attack people. We can attack people so often. We can take this Bible, we can roll it up, and we can beat people with it like crazy. I see it happen. Social media is the easiest way to do that. It's easy to be tough behind a keyboard. We cannot let our, our passion for Jesus come without knowledge of Jesus. We cannot let our passion for Jesus come without a relentless pursuit to become more like Him. Because once we do that, once we do that, folks, we get out of control and we will hurt people for Jesus. And that's happened far too often. It's happened far too often when we have done this. You have to remember that Jesus does not fit into your box. God did not create you so he could become more like you. He created us to become more like him. So again, we'll ask the question, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? Because for Paul, it broke his heart to know that his people, the Israelites, knew better. And they were still doing this anyway. They knew better. Again, say that there again in verse 3, he says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Be careful that we're not making our own righteousness. That we're not establishing for ourselves what it means to be good, but we're letting Christ establish that for us. Verse 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We've said this kind of throughout this, this series, the law existed strictly to protect people's faith in God. It existed to grow people's faith in God by pointing them to God. But over time, the law became more important than that. And people were protecting the law more than they were protecting faith. And that's what's happening here. We want to put this in our context, in our culture. Church, what is it that we do that should protect people's faith in God, but often becomes a bigger deal. We just, the way we do things, traditions, things that, that mean a lot to us that really aren't that big of a deal. They're there to point people to Jesus, but they can become bigger than that. They can become more important than that, and they should never get in the way of someone coming to know Christ. If the way I'm doing things is keeping somebody from learning more about Christ, I'm doing them wrong. It's that simple. Faith is the expression of what we believe. Faith is based on what we can't see, what we hope for. But it's the confidence in all of that. And that's what Paul is stating here, is that it all boils down to faith. And whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we need to remember that. If you're not a Christian, that's where it starts, that you believe in Christ. There's nothing you have to do to earn the mercy and the grace of God. There's nothing you can do. But if you are a Christian, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, sometimes we need to step back and remember that. It's not about me. It's not about the way I want to do things. It's not about who I think I've become. It's about the Christ that I'm trying to be like, that I am trying to follow. Here's how Paul kind of ties a bow on this passage. Chapter 10, verse 8. He says, What does it say? 
the word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I read that. I read that passage. And that always just, it kind of just touches my heart. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. Christ did what needed to be done for you. God provided a way. God has made a plan. And that plan has been there all along. And at the core of that plan, regardless of what we might see and what we see others doing, that plan is that you believe in Him and that you follow Him so that you can become more like Him. And we acknowledge that's not always easy. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can tell somebody who's a non-believer, there's days that are hard. (laughs) There's days that are hard. We have to do a lot of self-reflection. If you want to change and become like Jesus, it requires you acknowledging, first off, that you need to change to become more like Jesus. And that's not always easy. But when we do that, when we relentlessly pursue Him, When we become more like him, we get the understanding of who he is better. And no, I might not ever figure Jesus out, but the longer I follow him and the more I pursue him, the more I will figure him out. And the more he will make sense to me. And the best part about it is this invitation is extended to anyone. So as we get ready to close this up and and wrap this up today, this is the invitation that's thrown out there. If you've not accepted Jesus... Today's a good day to do that. Because that invitation gets you on the same journey following him that I've enjoyed for so many years. And your path might look different than mine, and that's okay. Doesn't mean that mine's right and yours is wrong, or vice versa. God's given us all a unique path to follow him on. But the promise is the same, and the destination is the same. It's glory with him. So I'm going to pray here in a moment. Uh, Oli's going to come up and, and play as we lead into communion. If you've thought about accepting Christ and you would like to do that, I'd like to invite you to do that today. You can come off to the side. I'll wait over here. You don't have to come up and make a big public show out of it. But I'll wait over here for you. And you can come up during, during the communion time and, and we'll pray. God, we are so thankful for Jesus. God, we're so thankful that following him is not easy. Following him is hard because it requires change, and change requires reflection, and reflection requires admission that we don't have this all figured out. It requires admission that maybe, just maybe, I'm wrong about some things, and that's hard. God, I would just pray that you would touch hearts today, that you would encourage lives today and hearts, that it's okay to admit I don't have this all figured out. We need you. We need to rely on you. We need to depend on you. That's what faith is all about. And here's the best part, God. We don't have to have this figured out to follow you. We don't have to have you figured out to follow you. 
We just simply have to say yes and take that next step. God, I'm so thankful for Jesus and I am thankful for what he has done in my life. And I'm so grateful for the ways that he has blessed me. But God, in spite of all of that, I love you anyway. And I choose to follow you even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. God, I just pray that everybody else would feel that same desire, that same, that same pull. God, as you speak to lives and hearts today, just, just show them God, that becoming more like me is greater than you realize. It's greater than me becoming more like you. God, we're thankful for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.